Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs. Today we are joined by Jeffrey Kaufman. Now I am always interested in the backstories of entrepreneurs. What is that moment and what are those things that lead to somebody starting a company? By definition, it's very risky thing to do being an entrepreneur. But for Jeffrey, perhaps it seemed less risky than his previous occupation because he had started out life as a war correspondent, covering many wars across the globe, including, for example, Libya. And we talk in this episode about the way that war reporting is changing and that technology is improving the stories that are being told. But we also talk about his frustrations, and that led him to founding Trent, which started life as a kind of transcription service for journalists, but has now evolved into a much bigger content creation company. It is a great episode and one that is really thought-provoking with all the scenes that we've seen from Ukraine about the people that put themselves at risk to tell us these stories. It is a fascinating listen and I really hope you enjoy it. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners and I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series, and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. Jeffrey, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks very much, Jimmy. Very much of the present, I have to tell you, not of the future, but happy to talk to you about past, present, and future. That's true. I should have introed with that. Um, so t- look, tell us how you made the jump from being a war reporter and an Emmy um, award-winning reporter as well to becoming a startup founder. Um. You know, if you had told me 10 years ago, uh, I was here in London uh, as London correspondent for ABC News, the big American network. I'd been a a television journalist for more than 30 years, starting in Toronto, where I'm from, and local news, and then at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for uh, a dozen years or so, and then spent almost 20 years at the US network, CBS, but uh, Evening News in New York, and ABC News based in Miami, covering Latin America uh, and the Southern US for 10 years, then in three years of the, three of those years commuting to Baghdad during the Iraq war, and then coming here to London. If you had told me after all that, that I was gonna suddenly uh, in my fifties build a company, I would have literally given you <laughs> outrageously favorable odds and said, not a chance in life. Uh, I mean, I just didn't see this coming and I, I kind of have to laugh at myself. What was I thinking? What did I know? Um, it just kind of happened, to be honest. I, I had a, a chance encounter with some developers. I asked a question, why can't I leverage speech to text uh, to transcribe my interviews because it's the worst part of my job. 
And it led to some experimentation that was so successful. And it was one of those kind of light bulb moments you see in a cartoon. I literally said, this is the future. Either we do this or we go our separate ways and someone else will. Uh, and that was, I think, 2014. Um, and I left my job as London correspondent with ABC to, to build Trint. Uh, and I'm still shocked. And where, where did the name Trint come from? Ah, very interesting questions. How do you name a company? Uh, <laughs> one of my first challenges. Um, so, you know, what do you call a company? And what do you, how do you build a name that you can actually own? I talk to people I know in marketing and branding and, and um, in the, the best advice was invent a word. And the idea being that you can then trademark it. And so I, I quickly educated myself and I thought, okay, here are the criteria. I want it to be one syllable, easy to spell, and I want to be able to buy the .com for not very much. This is 2014, I guess, 2015 at this point when I'm starting the company. And I played around with words. You, you know, there's this concept of, uh, in English, the neologism or portmanteau, which is the merging of two words. I don't know whether you know that Viagra yeah. is invented. Uh, it's an invented word combining the words vitality and Niagara. That is- I did not know that. Go figure. So inspired- <laughs> not by Viagra, but by the concept, uh, maybe, maybe by both. Um, I played around with the words that, that were sort of core to the vision, uh, the early vision of the company. Um, and so transcription obviously was part of it. Transformation was part of it. And the core of what uh, I do as a journalist is an interview. And that's how I came up with Trent. Transcription plus interview equals Trent. And, and the dot-com was available. There was a squatter in Hong Kong uh, sitting on it, and I had to go through a broker, um, bought it for in, with very early seed money. So that was painful, a couple of thousand bucks. Um, yeah. But I kind of realized if I didn't buy it early, they could hold me ransom. And so I really had to do that. The one other criteria, by the way, was I wanted to be able to, to use it as a noun and a verb. Um, and that's actually worked. You know, let's trend and mm -hmm. check the trend. I was at uh, Fox News in New York a couple of weeks ago. They're one of our big clients in uh, Fox Sports. And um, they literally talk about the Trints coming in because uh, they live Trint everything out of the White House, for example. And uh, you can see it on, on their screens, uh, Trint of Biden uh, giving speech. Uh, it's, it's quite, it's really, I, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Um, the, the trademark lawyer actually said, oh, you know, be careful because if you, if it becomes, if you use it as a noun and a verb and other people start adopting it, you'll lose your trademark. And my response was, okay, but if it's good enough for Google, it's good enough for Trent. Uh, and and <laughs> I, I, I actually used to say to early investors when they said, where do you want this company to be? And I, I never had that Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, you know, um, Bragadaccio. I, I always felt like I had to kind of be audacious, but not uh, lie through my teeth. And so I used to say my aspiration is to get Trent in the dictionary. Uh, and, and I thought that, and they love that because they love, they love the audacity. They love the vision, but at the same time, I wasn't making things up the way certain, uh, founders who end up in trouble, uh, have. That is cool. And that's, that's very, it's audacious, but it's also, you can totally see the path to, uh, to doing it. And every founder kind of needs a mission. Um, and that's, uh, 
yeah, that's that's really cool. And talk to us a little bit about you. You kind of mentioned yeah seed money there. You, you've got some really interesting backers, haven't you? I mean, talk to us about kind of raising capital because it's you know like you say, a guy in his fifties doing it you know without any kind of direct entrepreneurship experience. It's, it's it's pretty unusual. It's not the stereotypical story we have in mind, right? You know, Jimmy, I in in my long career, I did some business reporting. I was, and I think I have to admit that when you're reporting on business and when you're running a business, they are just totally different lenses. Uh, you know, you think, God, what an idiot! Why would he do that? And you, now, now I'm the idiot. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, the reality is, you make so many mistakes. You do so many things you wish you, you know, you'd done differently. And you know, the the, the number of times you could beat yourself up saying. God, if I only knew this five years ago or three years ago, I, I could have saved myself a lot of pain and the, you know, the trajectory of the company would have been so different. I, you know, what seems so obvious from the outside is just not obvious. And, and I think um, you have to be incredibly resilient because um, if you have any, any EQ whatsoever, any emotional awareness whatsoever, you as, as a founder are your hardest critic. And, mm. you know, I've done stuff and thought, oh my God, what a boneheaded move that was. And, you know, it's, you know, just, it, it's a, it's a steep learning curve for anyone. I have no finance background. I've never, and in my 30 plus years in journalism, I never hired or fired anyone. I never had a 360 because I was on talent contracts at the networks. Um, you know, I had really no business skills whatsoever. What I had was a good idea and an understanding of what good looked like. And, and that, it turns out, is a pretty fundamental ingredient for building a, a startup into a successful company. You need to know intimately the problem you're, you're solving. And, and I would also say one more thing. You ought to really care about it because this is a marriage. You, you know, you can't start a company it's a very rare story that you can start a company and unload it quickly. These are long journeys. This is year seven for me. And, uh, you know, I didn't really think about that when I started it. It's a good thing I care about the space and I'm fascinated about it. You know, you said we're about transcription. We're now much more than that. We're a content creation platform powered by AI and transcription, but really about creating content in the age of, of voice and video. And that's, I guess that's one of the, I mean, we use it um, here at Jimmy's Jobs because it can be difficult to remember all the kind of 50 hours of audio we've recorded and what people have, have said. And I guess when I talk about it as a transcription service, it's that's the that's the entry product, isn't it? But talk to us about that kind of content creation and, and how you're, you're well, doing well, listen, more of that. Here's the way I describe it. I grew up in the 20th century in, in, in the age of text. I, I read newspapers on print, looked at glossy magazines like Time, and, and when I was a little boy, Life magazine. Um, it, TV was an appointment. If you missed last night's program, you weren't going to see it again. Oh, did you see that last night? No. Well, it wasn't like you could watch it again in the 1970s or 80s. It was just gone. Um, and so we really lived in a world of text. Audio and video were, were kind of passive mediums in the sense that you, you got it when you got it. And if you missed it, tough, tough bananas. We now live in a, an age powered by audio and video. And just as Bill Gates and, and, and Steve Jobs transformed text in the 1980s with Word and with, with, with Macintosh computers, we need that same transformation to make audio and video easy to navigate, to create content. 
And that's the challenge. And, 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 you know, the vision of Trent is really Google Docs for the spoken word. We are a collaborative platform. Simple transcription, you can get it now uh, cheaply if that's all you want. But, but the reality is that content creation is collaborative. Uh, just, just as text is, I, you know, I can highlight the, the moments in this conversation. You then look at them and go, yeah, yeah, let's choose this and this. Let's put that on social media, et cetera. We, you know, we now uh, have a live product that, that's going out, that's out with our enterprise customers that allows people to do this on their iPhones and on their Android from anywhere in the world, back to their newsrooms, back to their company offices. Uh, and they can literally be sitting in, in Nairobi talking to someone and somebody in New York, San Francisco and Manchester can be watching it come in and tweeting, writing, putting it, literally putting it out seconds after it's happened. That's the pressure today in the world of, of audio and video, this fire hose of content coming at us. I, I, mm. I think of a, a recorded audio or video file like this sitting on your computer as dark data. You know, I just mentioned the word Manchester. If I said, do you find that reference to Manchester? You'd go, where is it? And yeah. you know, that was the story of my life as a reporter. Oh, it's about halfway in. About, and it was like, thanks a lot. Now you print it, search the word Manchester. There it is. If there's an error in the AI transcription, you can hear it, correct it. And I can say, here's where he mentioned Manchester. And it, and it runs 24 seconds. Uh, can you check this fact? Uh, Etc. And so it's a kind of Google Docs like conversation around audio and video. That's what the world needs. And then you can actually on Trent take those moments that matter, the quotes, and 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 start to build your story in order and play it back and time it, etc. Uh, and then it's integrated into uh, platforms, or you can export it uh, as a Word doc if it's if it's a text story you're writing. That's the kind of power people need. We're, we're not disrupting jobs. We, we are enabling jobs. I, I mean, it's no secret, particularly in journalism, that budgets are tight. Yeah. Let's liberate people from the menial so they can, they can use their skills on the meaningful, which is content creation, not what I used to call the black hole of transcription. You know, when I, when I covered Latin America, I used to go down and do these, these documentary trips for two or three weeks. They were unbelievably interesting. I'm the luckiest guy in the world being sent for work to the Galapagos, Patagonia, uh, you know, the, the mountains, the Andes Mountains in, in, in Bolivia. But we'd come back with 20 hours of, of, of tape. And it was like, it was, it was, it was purgatory, you know, you'd, oh my God, who's going to listen to this? And, and here I was, this very well-paid network correspondent, my producer and I, and if we were lucky, an intern would be gone for two or three days into screening rooms, transcribing the interviews and shot listing them. You can't write a news story, a documentary, a video, if you don't know the words and pictures. And so we're very much about expediting that process, how much I would have loved it. And, and you know, we work in Spanish too, so it would have helped uh, even in Latin America because uh, we could have taken the Spanish interviews. My, I, I'm reasonably fluent, but not perfect. I, I, taken those Spanish interviews, printed them in Spanish and, and translated them to English. And then I could find in the interview the moment that I want, oh, this is where you know, President Morales of Bolivia is talking about the coca trade and et, et cetera. Let's get, can you, can, can you translate this precisely? Uh, that's a process that normally would take, you know, would be very expensive. Somebody who speaks Spanish has to transcribe it, translate it, I read it, et cetera. It's, it's a very, very 
uh, laborious process and and we are able to condense the, the, the workflow and allow you to get at the, the moments that matter faster it, it's really exciting for me you can tell I mean I, I lived this pain for, for decades and it's fascinating and we're just beginning I mean I think that the innovation in this space is endless because the appetite for content is endless so Jeff tell me about what you think the future of journalism looks like uh, you know, I think to talk about the future of journalism, I need to go to the past where I began in the 1980s. At that point, uh, when I was a TV reporter, local TV reporter in my first job in Toronto uh, at a fledgling network called Global, um, you did one thing. You were a reporter. I mean, it was you did you had there were a lot of skills involved, research, writing, uh, interviewing, uh, structuring. Uh, supervising the edit, but you didn't shoot, you didn't edit, you didn't do the audio. I think today, all of those things are required. You are seriously handicapped as a, as a, an aspiring journalist, even you know as a, as an employed journalist. If you don't have some fluency in the technical skills of the craft, and I think that that's just going to become more and more important. And you know, I, I from time to time do lectures at journalism schools. And, and one of the questions I ask is, how many of you want to be writers and reporters? Hands go up. How many of those people know how to shoot, edit, uh, do all sorts of uh, technical things on the web, you know, code, code a website? And depending on the school, hands stay up or hands go down. And I think that, you know, I, I spoke at one school just before the pandemic where nobody was being trained to do those things. And I said, I, I don't think your, your, your professors are doing you a service because if I have to hire someone as, a, as, a, as an editor or even in brand marketing uh, in, in my current role running a tech company, I want a multitasker. I'm not interested in someone who's just a writer. I mean, that being said, we do have people in our marketing team who are just, so to speak, writers. And when I say just, I don't mean that because I think being a writer is a rare craft. Mm. And, and, I, and I would say this about journalism, because right now, in fact, I'm looking at the resumes of writers uh, for, for content writers for, for our marketing team. Being a great writer is a, a really valuable skill. Being a competent writer is okay. But you know, we now, before we'll even give someone an interview in my company, we ask them to submit examples of their published work. And it's amazing how quickly you can tell if someone has real fluency in words, is a real wordsmith. There are lots of people who are competent. There are, there are very few people who really can make words soar. And those are the people who I think, no matter what their other technical skills, if they, if they can find the right niche, they will, they will soar too. Because if you, if you, you know, read the great newspapers, if you look at you know, great books, if you listen to great radio documentaries or great, great TV documentaries, the foundation is still writing. And what, what tips do you have for somebody? There's so much content being created and so many words, as you say, being written. How do those people that really can make words sing, how do they demonstrate that? How do they get in front of people to be able to do that? in the modern world? Oh, you know, that uh, there isn't really, uh, it's an interesting question, but I think like any, anything, any passion, you've got to want it badly. And I think journalism, like building a startup, these are 
you know, th these are passion uh, uh, plays as much as anything. You've got to believe in it. You've got to want it. You've got to, you know, be your, your own toughest critic and, and just keep going. And, you know, you just don't take no for an answer. You just find a way around and you keep going. Um, it's a test and a lot of people get worn down by it for sure, whether it's writing or, or, or building a startup. Uh, but, you know, the reward is that it's incredibly interesting. It's a, you know, I spent 33 years in TV and radio and, and fundamentally I see my greatest craft as writing. You know, I think interviewing, uh, researching, uh, structuring stories uh, is all part of that, but using words effectively is is for me the, the the highest calling in journalism and and it's really rewarding if you have opportunities to do that and and increasingly you know that is not about text i think text should never be downplayed because i think ultimately great writing uh words on a on a page or on a screen is is, is yeah, will always have a place uh, but i think the ability to to think multi-dimensionally now is really really important and i would say avoid the noise you know there's a, a lot most of the content out, out there is just crap and it's meaningless. You know, I think there was a period when listicles became really popular. I mean, yeah. the 10 most this, the 10 least that. It, it was just cheap prostituted con content in my mind. It had no, it, 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 it's garbage in, garbage out. Don't get seduced by that stuff. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was basically trying to sucker you in so they could sell your eyeballs to advertisers. And I don't seem to see that as much, or maybe I just don't go to those websites anymore. I don't know. Uh, I, but I, I, I guess those websites that did that, um, I think the BuzzFeeds of the world um, ran into their own challenges. Uh, and I think, I think readers kind of got on, figured it out after a while. This is just kind of uh, tickling our, our rear ends and not really making us, not entertaining us, not making us smarter. So what's the point? I think that's true. I think there has been a move away from that and people realise But part of the reason why podcasting has become popular as well is like it's a deeper, longer form of content which um, yeah, people appreciate and is is different. Um, what... let, me, let me pick up on that because I think mm. that's a really interesting trend. And, and, you know, just when we were despairing 10 years ago about the superficiality of mainstream media, the, the, the distraction of all these kind of unfiltered, uh, uh, websites that call themselves news and media, but that had no, no nobody really looking at standards, quality, integrity, accuracy. Um, you know, I started in, in television when a, when a story, a feature story could be four minutes on the evening newscast. It then went down to three and then two and a half, then two. And then a news story shrunk to, you know, a minute 30, a minute, uh, 50 seconds. You can't do anything of value in 50 seconds. And the features were a minute 45. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I left TV. And uh, then along comes podcasts and podcasts are a deep dive. They are a full cooked meal in a world of fast food. And, and I just think it's fabulous. I'm, I'm hooked and, and uh, it's such, when it works, it's great. When it's just a bunch of guys or women sitting around a microphone talking about what they had for breakfast, I don't get it. I'm not interested. But I guess there's a market. I listened to one, I won't say which one, but one podcast by a big American celebrity that was recommended to me. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I just didn't care about what they were talking about. They were just, it was just a bunch of boys sitting around having a beer and I didn't want to join them. Uh, but, you know, I think that the substantive podcasts, the, 
the very focused ones like this, the news media ones, um, you know, the Daily from the New York Times, uh, Today in Focus from the Guardian. Uh, you know, I listen to the to to all sorts of 99% invisible, which is just a, a really fun, really smart one uh, from California on uh, urban life, um, uh, this American life. Uh, there are just, there's so many good meals to be had, gourmet meals in the world of podcasting. I kind of think it's saving journalism. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's lots of great recommendations there. I'll just throw my uh, one of mine in there that I've come across from your previous line of work as well, which is called The Line of Fire, which is all about interviewing war correspondents. Um, and it's been kind of fascinating. My wife and I have been making our way through that in the last uh, couple of weeks, and it's it's amazing. What has been your thoughts watching what has been unfolding in Ukraine? and? Is there an element of when you see it happening and you see the war correspondence out there, is there a bit of you that, that still misses it and, and misses the enormous adrenaline that must okay, come Okay, so you, 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 you've, you've asked two questions. You've broken a... I, I'm going to publicly scold you because you've asked two very different <laughs> questions. And when you ask traditionally two very di- di- difficult, different questions, people habitually opt for the easy one. Uh, how was breakfast? What did you think of the coffee? Uh, you know, they're just going to say coffee was okay. That's just the way double-barreled questions are. So (laughs) first question, what do I think of when I watch it? So I was in Iraq um, and uh, went back and forth to to, to the Middle East uh, um, during the Iraq war 2003 to five and was in the Gulf during the Afghan war. Um, And then I was in mostly Libya, but also Tunisia and Egypt during uh, the Arab Spring in 2011. I watch this and and I watch it through a different lens than most people because I'm watching not only uh, the incredibly solid reporting coming out of uh, uh, Ukraine, but I'm also looking at the technology. And there was a moment when I saw Orla Garin, the brilliant BBC war correspondent, uh, interviewing a woman on her, I think it was her iPhone. And the camera, the BBC camera was over her shoulder and you could see Orla talking to this woman whose face was on the phone in Orla's, the palm of Orla's, Orla's hand. And I think the woman was in Mariupol or, or some very intense conflict zone where reporters couldn't get to. Just Mariupol, I think it was, was, was cut off. And I thought, wow, this woman who had, I think, witnessed tragedy um, was telling Orla, and we as viewers were listening to this very powerful interview that was not possible 10 years ago when I was in uh, Tripoli or 20 years ago when I was in Baghdad. This is this is how technology is changing storytelling. You look at that horrible, horrible massacre in that suburb of Kiev where people were just shot down randomly on the street. Drones went over there, uh, over the site and, 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 and captured the dead bodies, but, but security cameras captured the, the Russians doing this. Uh, and, and what would have taken months of piecing together to tell the story journalistically, not only as well as for war, war crimes prosecutors, has happened in a matter of days and weeks because of the advances in technology. And, and, and so technology is allowing us to bear witness and, and hold people accountable. We actually know the faces of six or eight of the, the young soldiers who, who committed these uh, uh, random murders. And, and so, you know, we don't know whether they'll be held accountable, we've, they've got to be found. But and they, they actually trace some of them through their Facebook and social media accounts. I mean, this is where journalism is moving now in the sense that, you know, someone who committed a war crime, capture his face 
on a security camera, search, we know what regiment he's in because of documents that they found in the, in the site, search that, that on, online and they found, a, they found the guy's picture in his name. I mean, that's an incredible piecing together. None of that was possible 10 years ago. This is where technology and, you know, as much as I'm not a fan of Facebook and social media, and I think it's, they've really caused a lot of uh, existential challenges to democracy. These kind of, uh, of, of, of things are, are extraordinary because they allow us to hold people to account. And, you know, we know who killed these people. We just now have to uh, see them brought to justice. I think I, your other question. I was going to say, so now it's, so, so do you miss it? No, I don't. I'll tell you why. It, it's, it's, it's physically grueling. I know what it's like. You know, I have friends who were living in a parking garage in Kiev for, for you know, weeks on end, sharing one toilet with 100 people, sleeping on a cot, um, eating food out of tins. Been there, done that. It is hard. And, and you know, uh, I've also been in situations where I've seen, you know, I've seen people die and I've seen people, you know, I've seen awful things. And, you know, I think there's a limit to how much I want to expose myself to that because you never forget those images. I, you know, I, I have what I call the, the, the carousel of, of horror in my mind. And I, you know, I, I don't think that I've, I've suffered PTSD. I only see those images uh, when I'm talking about it. I don't have nightmares about it, but, you know, you never forget bodies and dismemberment and people dying in front of you. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a, it is a traumatic uh, experience. And I think that to see that consistently or too much of it, um, you know, we all handle it differently, but I, you know, I feel like I did a fair amount of that, um, not just in the Middle East, but in, in Haiti and in Latin America and Central America. Um, and I kind of feel like I, 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 had my turn. I, I, I really respect people, my contemporaries like Jeremy Bowen, the brilliant war reporter from uh, uh, the BBC, and, and Lise Doucette, who I went to university with in Canada. Uh, we were in the same political science class uh, um, years ago, uh, who's now you know, one of the most brilliant voices, uh, who doesn't call herself a war correspondent. Uh, uh, you know, I, she she talks about the people and and about she she emphasizes she's not interested in war. She's interested in in the people who are who are impacted by conflict. And, and I have huge respect for people, my contemporaries, who still want to do it. Um, I mean, I, you know, if I were still in journalism, I, I I would do it. But I feel like life is a series of adventures, and I never expected this second career as an entrepreneur. And I'm I'm really proud of the fact that I I plunged from one career that I passionately loved and didn't need anymore in terms of challenge into a new career that is completely different, um, not dangerous in the same uh, uh, physical way, uh, but but challenging in, in, in different but but equally stimulating ways and scary as hell, not in not not in the terms of personal security, but it's a high wire act. And uh, when you start a company and you now have, and have 110 employees and, you know, you feel responsibility to the employees, the investors, the customers not to mess this up and uh that what, that's a pretty good challenge right now to keep me occupied and what's the one thing if you could go back to 2014 when you were starting out on this journey what's the one thing that you wish you could tell yourself that you know now <laughs> hmm. that i can say publicly um <laughs> uh yeah uh um that's an interesting question um 
You know, I, I don't think there is one thing. I, I can't. I struggle with that. I think there are so many things because I think there isn't a day that goes by today that I, I, I don't catch myself thinking, God, I wish I knew this three years ago, five years ago. I would have done things differently. I think that. Uh, I, I guess. I, I guess I would say it's an imperfect journey. Um, I was always honest about what I didn't know. I always said. Uh, I'm the most unqualified person in the room to build a startup, but I have a really good idea and I know uh, that there's a need for it. And I, I, I don't, I resist the temptation to apologize to investors and employees for my, my failings because I've never misrepresented. I've never said I have an MBA that I've built three startups. I'm a reporter who had a really good idea and, you know, I haven't killed it yet. Um, you know, we continue to grow and nobody's more surprised than me. So I, I think you, 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 you have to give yourself some oxygen and say, you know, it's an imperfect world. Just be honest, uh, be humble. Um, I think that, that the, that, that having seen real suffering and real tragedy, I, my perspective on uh, this is somewhat different because I know that my worst day is better than so many people's best days. And, and I think yeah, that yeah. gives me perspective on, you know, okay, things went bad. Somebody key resigned. You know, we lost a, you know an account we thought we were going to get. Oh, you know that's really crap. But you know we're not in Ukraine. We're not in you know Baghdad in two thousand three. Um, life will go on and we'll be okay. And there'll be food on the table. And you know we can walk in the park safely, etc. So I think that's given me a lot of perspective. And um, you know I, I talk in terms of uh, I think to be a founder you need what I call humble overconfidence, which is a complete oxymoron, but it's true. You need the humility to admit what you don't know and not blag and lie your way uh, to success and to also to, 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 to pick yourself up when you make mistakes. You need the overconfidence to keep going. You, you do. You need, to be, you, need, you need to be able to say, well, okay, I should have done something differently or gosh, if I'd known that or, you know, oh, that competitor did something really smart. I wish I'd thought of that. You, you just need the overconfidence to say, keep going. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not giving up. And, and, and I think those, 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 those two qualities as contradictory as they seem actually are complementary. I think that's true. It's funny. I was going to ask you for your piece of advice as I sort of find myself in as an accidental broadcast journalist, but I think you gave me a pretty good one earlier about not asking double barrel questions at the same yeah. time. I think that's going to be the one I, thing. I'll I'd tell say. you that when I was at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, we, we had interview training when I was very young and there, there was a, a, a term that we, that I always remember called OSNA, uh, which is an acronym for open-ended, simple, neutral, active questions. Open-ended meeting did not, did you like the coffee, but how was the coffee? Because if I say to you, how, how you know, did you like the coffee? I'm prejudicing your answer. So open-ended is a more honest way. To, uh, simple means simple. Don't, you know, did you like the coffee? Uh, you know, how, how, was, how was the toast? Uh, ask one question at a time. Uh, neutral, again, don't bias the question. You know, make, make, make sure that, that uh, you're not pushing people in a direction you want to, you know, do you think Boris Johnson's a jerk? You know, I mean, you can't ask questions like that, even if you think that, you know, what do you think of Boris Johnson? Um, um, and, and then active is just more simply to, to, to use the active voice because it's a more interesting voice than the passive voice, rather than what did you see? It's, you know, you're walking down the street, you know, you look up and you, you see a person, you know, take me to that moment. It's just a more engaging way to, to, to talk. So, so those are those are good little rules to to live by when you're doing interviews. 
That is very good. And I will take those on board, definitely. And the final question that I wanted to ask you was as somebody that we've talked about in this interview that consumes a lot of content and has thinks a lot about the content that they consume. Is there been a particular piece lately, whether it be book, film, Netflix documentary or podcast that you think has been particularly good and, and particularly impactful on you? Um, I'm going to say two. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm on Desert Island Discs now. <laughs> um, uh, so there's a, a book by Patrick Lencioni uh, called uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, a fable. And it's a really good book on leadership and building startups and, and the kind of personalities and problems you face. And man, you read that and you just laugh and you go, oh, I know her. Oh, I know him. Oh, he's, he's not. He's going to get fired. And he looks at the foundations uh, of, of uh, leadership and teamwork uh, in leadership. And it's a really good manual. I, I highly recommend it. It has a bunch of exercises at the back. We use it uh, in our leadership team. In fact, we did a, an offsite uh, last week. And one of the days, the senior leadership, we had, we had senior leadership and, and, and our management, we divided into two. And the senior leadership actually did a number of exercises around this book. It really provokes conversation or, or, around trust and accountability and results and how you how you build these foundations to, to, to really be a, a high-functioning team not not just high functioning individuals well that's i mean that sounds a very good recommendation from somebody who has literally had to build a team to follow them into yeah the well and you, zones, you, right right i mean what you discover is that, that that you know management is is a social science there is useful theory and there you know this has been going on for well over 100 years the study of management and behavior and you know it, it is a social science so it's not an exact science but it really is helpful to understand some of the models and it give a, a kind of vocabulary for it the other thing that i would recommend um, there's a, a, a very good TED Talk podcast by a guy named Adam Grant who, who uh, looks at, at, at work uh, and, and the work environment called Work Life. And he did a, a two, two episodes with Indra Nui, who was the CEO, um, the Indian-born um, CEO of PepsiCo. And she is extraordinary. Uh, you, you listen to her and you think, Oh my God, I am so unqualified to be a leader when you hear how smart she is and the kind of her, her approach and philosophy to leadership, taking over the number two soft drinks company, PepsiCo, you know, up in Atlanta, up against Coca-Cola and how she approached success and how she approached management and the kind of enlightened uh, creative thinking she took to that job. Those two podcasts are, I think, riveting um, just to hear her. Adam Grant's a great interviewer. He really understands. Uh, um, he, he's an academic who studies work uh, and business environment. And, and they just make a great combo. So I, I highly recommend uh, Work Life with Adam Grant interviewing Indra Nui. Brilliant. What a fantastic way to finish. Jeffrey, thanks so much for doing this. It's been amazing to hear about your journey from war correspondent to entrepreneur and everything that you're doing at Trint uh, is so important. And as I say, we use it here as well to go through the back catalogue of of every of all the interviews and so on and see where we can find interesting crossover points. So I love it. Music to my heart. It's, you know, <laughs> I, I, as, as much as I want to make a killing uh, from this, to be honest, making a product that's useful is is really you've got to you've got to want to do that because that's that's really the joy of this 
you know, it, it's such a creative, such a hard process, but it's creative. And, and it's so, it's so rewarding to hear people actually see the value in it. So thank you. Well, I hope we can thank do it in me. person one day. Thanks very much, Jeffrey. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us. They can be like today's, like the Octopus Group or the Fintech Alliance, but also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer 52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners 